Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're just going to walk through this text together slowly today. Uh, Verse 1 of our passage says, He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Now, as I read these opening words, I can picture the disciples uh, finishing their own prayers and then looking over and and waiting patiently for Jesus to finish his own. Uh, These would have been private moments within the context of community. Uh, Private personal prayer uh, was not uh, unfamiliar or foreign to the children of God. Uh, And so they would have been watching and praying, and it seems that they were deeply impressed upon, it was deeply impressed upon their hearts how important prayer was to Jesus. And so much so that when he finished, they spontaneously asked, or one of the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Now, typically, a Jewish rabbi would give their students a prayer formula. Uh, So there was personal prayers, but then rabbis would have a a, a yoke that they would put on their disciples. This is why when we we speak about the idea that Jesus' yoke is is light, or is easy, and his burden is light, uh, rabbis had a yoke, and a part of that yoke was a, a prayer. This is how I want you to pray. Some would say it's a, it's a, it's a pattern to follow. Others would say uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a specific prayer that we are supposed to pray specifically. Pray these words. Commentators are, are, are divided sometimes as to, to what the rabbis were doing. But what a disciple would do is they would take this formula or they would take this particular prayer uh, and often they could find themselves just praying those words again and again and again, that they would just pray exactly what was said and it becomes something that happened without thinking. In fact, it's hard for me even to, to think of this prayer from Luke's gospel. Many of you might be thinking, well, that didn't sound quite right. That didn't sound like how we've heard it from Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. It doesn't just start, Father, it's our Father. And if, we, if we're all good uh, King James, we remember reading as a little boy or girl, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This just doesn't sit quite right. Uh, but it's one of the reasons I wanted to preach from a different translation today is so that this, the prayer itself sounds differently. Uh, this is why Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says to the people who are listening, when you pray, do not keep on babbling. Don't, don't say words that your brain is not a, participating in. Don't babble when you talk to God, because that's what some were doing. They would take a prayer formula and repeat it, thinking that this was pleasing to God, certainly pleasing to their rabbi. Now, John the Baptist was not a typical rabbi, and some of Jesus' disciples had first followed him. In essence, they were asking Jesus, perhaps, to teach them his way of prayer. Like John and other rabbis did with their own disciples, in response, Jesus gives a pattern, a parable, and a picture. Now the pattern. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the pattern today. I really want to get to the, to, to the, the latter part of the text, um, picking up at verse 5. But let's take a look at the prayer that Jesus gives. Uh, the first thing Jesus gave them uh, was what a rabbi most often gave, a pattern. Reading again verses 2 to 4. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. This prayer pattern is most commonly known today as the Lord's Prayer, or uh, for some, the Our Father, due to the opening lines of Matthew's version of the prayer, Our Father who art in heaven. A more fitting title might be the Disciples' Prayer. 
as it was given to all of his disciples to use so that they might learn how to better pray. Uh, there is so much that could be said about this, um, but this is a passage that we, we come back to on a regular basis. I want to get us to the following aspects, the, the and that Jesus provides. He says, teach us how to pray. He says, here's your pattern. And then he continues. I want to get to the continuation part. Uh, so after providing the disciples with this pattern for prayer, which we can dissect and pull apart, and many have done that through the years, Jesus continues the lesson by sharing with them what one commentator calls the parable of the pushy pal. He probably comes from my grandfather's generation where everything has to be alliterated. The parable of the pushy pal. I think that took some work. Uh, it's a story about a man who receives a late-night guest. Reading at verse 5. He also said to them, this is the, Jesus now continuing, wanting to unpack what he's been talking to them about. He says, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine has come on a journey and has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Ah, and he continues, sorry. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, in order to understand this parable, uh, we need to know a few things about first century culture. Uh, first of all, keep in mind, food was not as readily available as today. There was no 7-Eleven that you could run to for your coffee in the morning or for a loaf of bread late at night because a friend has arrived on your doorstep. Uh, so bread was baked each day for the day, and one of the first tasks in the morning would be to prepare the bread for that day. Secondly, hospitality was held in high regard. It was almost seen as a matter of duty. A visitor was welcomed and cared for regardless of the hour of his arrival. In order to avoid the intense midday heat, people would often begin their journeys later in the afternoon uh, after the, the sun had begun to dip a little bit, uh, traveling into the evening. If they had a long journey, it could take them even later into the night despite danger. A, traveling, a, a, a traveler could arrive as late as midnight, uh, and it wasn't completely uncommon. And so here is the dilemma. The poor, unprepared host has a late-arriving guest who is hungry after a long and exhausting journey. And it's his duty as host to provide a meal, but he has no bread. Not to provide for his guest's needs would bring shame on himself, his family, and in, in some respects, the entire village that he was a part of. But what is he to do? He has no bread. And so though this man cannot supply the need, he knows that there is someone who can so he goes to his neighbor's house despite the late hour to ask for help. Uh, even today, it's easy to understand the reluctance of the man to provide for his neighbor's need. Uh, anyone who has ever wrestled uh, to get children into bed over and over and over to just get them down, and you think, yes. Just to have the phone ring, the doorbell go off. No, no, no. Of course, and in my case, uh, not so much my son Stephen, but my daughter Rachel, 
Oh, is there a person here? Can I, who, who's the person? I don't want to miss out on the person. Out of bed, in the living room. Oh, we have to start all over again. And that's how it is for us today. In Jesus' day, people didn't live in 2,000-foot bungalows and, and two-story houses where everybody had their own room and you could put the child in their room upstairs, close the door, sneak downstairs, and maybe even make a bowl of popcorn without the kids knowing. They didn't have that luxury. Instead, the entire household typically slept in the same space in which they cooked, ate, and socialized. And keep this in mind. When I say the household, I don't just mean mom and dad and Johnny and Susie. I mean mom and dad, perhaps dad's parents, maybe, maybe mom's mom, the kids, and then the small livestock that the family looked after. They would be brought into the house to keep them safe from thieves and from wild animals. And so to get up, this would mean that this man has to go through considerable inconvenience. If it's hard for us to get our children to bed, trying to get your goat to go to sleep, <laughs> i got to tell you, I imagine I would be a little bit uh, upset if all of a sudden someone starts pounding on the door late at night. The man inside the house initially refused the request. Friendship alone was not a significant, sufficient reason to upset the whole household. But the text says that finally, the reluctant friend got up and gave his neighbor what he needed. For one reason only, the persistence and boldness of the man making the request. Fine. Fine. Here you go. Now, traditionally, we have looked at this parable, and we've understood that Jesus is commending the man for his shameless boldness. And there's nothing here to say that the boldness and the persistence is to be denigrated, is to be put down. And it's true that the parable brings about good results. The boldness brings about an answer. But what I'm going to suggest is that persistence is not at the very core of what Jesus is actually getting at in this text. If we understand this parable to be primarily about persistence, it can warp our theology and leave us with a completely erroneous picture of God, suggesting that he, just like the neighbor in the parable, is unwilling to help, that he needs to be persuaded to meet our needs. Now, we wouldn't say we believe that God is unwilling to help and has to be persuaded, but that becomes the outcome of a passage that says we get answers to prayer when we persist. It paints God as the unwilling, reluctant, tired neighbor who doesn't want to be bothered, but finally will do it because you haven't let him get to sleep. And so as a result, we embrace an entirely wrong theology of God. Our Father is not sleeping, nor is he reluctant, uh, but what we see in this passage being, when we see this passage being primarily about persistence, we subconsciously come to see prayer as twisting the arm of a reluctant God until he says, I give up. I give up. Stop pestering me. Okay, all right, all right. I, sure, yes, all right. I think it's safe to say we would agree that this is a totally misguided, uh, mis inappropriate picture of the heart of God. And if our prayer life is based on such a theology, then taking time to bring our needs to God, taking time to abide with him, well, no wonder it could be seen as such a grind, such a difficult thing, a burden rather than a grateful delight and a joy. 
But what Jesus was talking about was the complete opposite. You see, God is not reluctant to bless. He is exceedingly ready to do so. The rabbis of Jesus' day were known for communicating very effectively, and they would often use rhetorical tools to do so. Uh, They would use humor. uh, They would use parables. Yes, Jesus didn't invent the parable. He just used it better than everybody else. They would use the oxymoron, etc., to grab the attention of their audience and prepare them to absorb what they wanted to teach them. Here we see Jesus, the consummate teacher, using the rabbinical method of contrast, just as he did with the parable of the wise and the foolish builder. Jewish rabbis often employed contrast, and his disciples would have been quite familiar with this. Friends, it's critical that we understand this. In essence, Jesus is saying, there was a man who was asleep and was most reluctant to get up and give his friend what he needed. But because of his friend's perseverance, he reluctantly gives in to him and provides what he needed. Thankfully, our Father is not like this. And so I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Uh, There was a Methodist missionary uh, in India back in the uh, early 1900s. His name was E. Stanley Jones. Uh, In fact, I'm not sure how he got this title, but I was reading recently that Time magazine in something like 1932 named him uh, the world's greatest missionary. I I don't know how you get the title of world's greatest missionary, uh, but I know that his books and and his writings are still uh, highly uh, revered uh, even 100 years later. Uh, But E. Stanley Jones, uh, he put it this way. He said, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is cooperating with his highest willingness. His highest willingness. I do want to be clear here, and I want to state that Jesus is not saying that when we ask or seek, that we will always get exactly what we have in mind, but that our knock will be answered, and that whatever reply we do get will be what is best for us, given from a generous and a hospitable father. In other words, Jesus is telling us that his father is generous of heart. He is neither stingy nor cheap. And so when we come to prayer, when we we sit with God, when we abide with him, uh, to have this picture in our mind that our, our, our generous father is eager for us to knock on the door. Whereas this man, uh, the neighbor, is asleep and is, and is wondering who is at the door, uh, we can picture our father as, as actually uh, being wide awake and ready and saying, is anyone at the door? Who's coming? Terry, are you at the door? Do you want to knock? Yeah, why don't you knock? Let's talk. I, I've, got, I've got good gifts for you. Now, how about the The picture. From the parable, we learn that God longs for us to come and to knock, that he wants to answer prayer. The ensuing word picture reveals that his answers are always good ones. And this is because God is a good God. Now, sometimes we think, well, well, good is, I mean, that's not a very big word. Good is kind of vanilla, isn't it? But it seems to be such an appropriate word. It's a word that is hard to pull apart. God is good. In fact, it's become a, a, a saying within the church. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Sometimes those things become cliche, but they become a cliche for a reason. Because they endure, they they stand the test of time. God is a good, loving, heavenly Father. He can be expected only to answer our prayer, not only to answer our prayers, but to answer in such a way that it is for our our highest good as well. Let's continue with our text, picking up at verse 11. 
Jesus says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, we have another picture of contrast, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Suddenly a different light is seen on this teaching. It is no longer, you must press on, uh, sorry, uh, grind your teeth, persevere in prayer, keep asking, don't let up, put in more effort, do more. And suddenly prayer is no longer a performance that we must get right. Suddenly prayer is not about a formula any longer, but the emphasis is on the character of the one that we pray to. Generous and good. Finally, we are starting to get our theology right. We're integrating that theology into our prayer life. Uh, We no longer fall into the deception of a reluctant God who folds his arms and says, sorry, I will only answer if you are good enough, if you perform correctly, if you say the right words, if you say it enough time. We are no longer laboring under deception of a God who shouts, you can do better than that. Instead, it moves us to see God, our God, as the God who truly wants to bless the God who wants to bless his children over and above whatever we can ask or imagine. And how much more? Jesus' Jesus' final words to us today makes plain the idea that in addition to generous, our Father is good. Generous and good. And that whatever does come to us as a result of our requests and God's response will not be some sick joke such as a stone or a snake. Good fathers, Good, human, sinful, broken fathers know that this is not the right way to respond to a child's request. And Jesus rightly points out that our Heavenly Father is even less inclined to act in such an evil way. At the end of the day, Jesus is exhorting his his followers to pray, to humble themselves and ask, to be consistent, to to pray unceasingly, to pray daily, ask for our daily bread, Because his father, our father, is generous and he is good. Now, I will admit that this can be a difficult truth when we have a steeped history that makes us think that God has to be persuaded and convinced, especially when we have prayed and have not received what we wanted. Let's be honest. Uh, If you have prayed and you have received what you have asked for, you're sitting here going, you're preaching to the choir, John. Yes, God is generous and good. Absolutely, all the time. But what happens when we have prayed and we have received a no or a not yet? Can we believe that this God we have prayed to is generous and he is good? You see, Jesus wants you and I to process the Father's answers to our asking and our seeking through the lens of these truths. Not to understand these truths to be real when we get our way. Jesus is not generous and good when we get a yes. Jesus is generous and good, and he is the one that we then come to trusting him for his yes or his no or his other or his weight or whatever it may be. This means that when we lose our job, God, I know you are generous and good. I don't understand what's going on. I'm afraid. When we don't get accepted into the program of study that we hoped for, God, I know you are generous and good. I I don't understand. Help me to understand. What are you doing? When we receive a diagnosis that scares us, 
God, you are generous and you are good. I'm afraid, but you are generous and good. Help me, I'm afraid. When our kids don't share our faith, when they walk a different path, God, I know you're generous and good. I know you're generous and good. Despite the circumstances of my life, I know that you are generous and good. Help me. We still pray for the things that we want. We still pray that our children will come to faith. We still pray that our health, uh, that the things in our body, will, will, the bad things will go away, that we will be healed. We pray that we'll get the job, we'll get a new job. We pray that we get into our course of study. We still ask, Jesus says, ask for your daily bread. We're told to pray without ceasing. None of these things go away. But who do we pray to? When we get a no, when life is hard, when it's difficult, when there's wars and rumors of wars, when we, when we come into an election season and it just seems like everybody is lying and yelling and screaming at each other and the world is a terrible place. Lord, you are generous and good. And it's to you that I come with my needs and my worries and my concerns and my fears. There's a story told of a Roman emperor. Uh, this is a story I think a lot of pastors use, so bear with me. You may have heard this before. But a story is told of a Roman emperor who's riding through the streets of Rome in his chariot as he returns home the victor of a great battle. Now, cheering people lined the streets while the legionnaires were stationed to keep the people at a safe distance. The emperor's family sat on a platform to watch him go by in all the pride of his position. As the emperor came near the place where his family was stationed, a young boy jumped from the platform, burrowed through the crowd, and tries to dodge a legionnaire so he could run to the emperor's chariot. The soldier stops the boy as he is supposed to and says, you can't go near him. The boy laughs. He says, he may be your emperor, but he is my father. And he runs into his father's open arms. We are just like that little boy. At least we're called to be like that little boy. We, too, are encouraged and called to run right up to the emperor of the universe, our heavenly father, and throw ourselves into his open arms. He stands at the door. He is eager for us to knock. He is ready to provide. He is generous, and he is good. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us to do just that when they write these words, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Even this author understands the Father is generous and he is good. As I said at the outset, it doesn't take much time on Twitter, uh, your favorite news app, or even the newspaper or the evening news, uh, to be reminded that we are living in a troubled time. The reports we hear grieve our hearts, they stir our anxiety, they make us angry and afraid, but in those moments, we can turn to our Heavenly Father. We can, we can put down Twitter. We can turn off the TV. We can close the newspaper. And we can sit. We can, we can marinate. We can abide with the one who just wants to abide with us. With the God that Jesus tells us is generous and good. We can bring it all to him. Our questions, our frustrations, our worries, our fears, our hopes, our anger, our uncertainty. What his answers will be are not known. The text doesn't tell us that we will get all that we want. 
but we can have confidence in the character of God. As we have confidence in the character of God, we can trust his answers as well. Let's pray. Father God, Jesus gave us a a pattern to pray, and we are grateful for that. But Lord, in in this moment, as we we sit with your word, we, we acknowledge that that Jesus wanted us to be in, incredibly certain of the character of the one to whom we pray. And so we pray in the name of Jesus to our Heavenly Father, who is generous and good. You want us to pray. You are eager for us to come. You are not a, a, a neighbor who wants to sleep or rest or has to be persuaded. You call us to come, and so we come. And we, we bring it all. We bring, we bring the good, the bad, the ugly. We bring who we are and who we want to be. We bring our friends and our loved ones and our neighbors, and, and we bring their concerns as well. Lord, help us to, to, to know your character, to revel in it, to rest in it, to soak in it, to abide in it, so that we can have confidence, not only when we receive the answers that we want, but that when you, in your infinite wisdom, like a good father sometimes, needs to say no. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of prayer, but thank you most of all for who you are and for the delight that you take when we come to you. May we respond in kind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.